You're listening to AI Impressions with hosts Kate Dudzik, Eric Yensu, and John Diltz, a podcast for the curious, where we explore the spaces between ones and zeros. Hello, and welcome to another episode of AI Impressions. We are your hosts joining you today. My name is Kate Dudzik. We also have Eric Yensu and John Diltz. So welcome, welcome, everyone. Good morning, afternoon, Good morning. evening, wherever you are. <laughs> Undetermined time of day at some point, maybe. Uh, so today we are going to head into a bit of a more technical episode for you today because we wanted to focus on some of the actual engineering components of artificial intelligence. Kind of like the lessons that everyone expects you to know, but no one ever actually teaches you in words that are you know, comprehensible for the average human. Basically a whole lot of jargon, but actually in English this time. So <laughs> Eric and I are going to be here to uh, pick John's brain on some of the technical expertise that we have going on here. All right. Well, thank you. Um, I'm not gonna. I, I am gonna touch on terms, um, things that you hear. I'm gonna lead up to where we are today. Um, but I do want to start off with some of the history, like what got us here. Um, I think a lot of people have a misconception that AI is a new thing, um, and a lot of people don't realize that it's damn near 80 years old. Um, the, the concepts I and everything, yeah, it, it's, it, it's been around a long time. Um, yeah. for, for instance, the, the term artificial intelligence, uh, yeah. was coined in 1956. Jesus, um, really? Yeah. 1956. Um, it was a workshop of, I think 12 or 13 scientists and engineers, just people top in their field after world war two. Um, got together. Uh, it was organized, I believe, by John McCarthy um, from Dartmouth, and it was known as the Dartmouth Workshop. Um, and it was a summer. Uh, they, they all got together somewhere and talked and people kind of in and out. Some people stayed the whole time. Some people didn't. Um, but it was really led clearly. And you're going to recognize some of these names. I mean, like I said, John McCarthy from Dartmouth, yeah. uh, Marvin Minsky. Everyone's heard of him in, in the terms of, you know, AI. My dog is in part named after him. <laughs> in part Marvin Minsky and in part Marvin the Mar or the uh, the robot from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because he's my companion to the ends of the earth. Always, <laughs> so I do never forget Marvin. your towel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Always, man. <laughs> the, uh, the, the other two that were really prominent that was Nathaniel Rochester, which a lot of people probably don't know unless you really kind of get into this kind of history as a mathematician and, and research scientist and just technologist and stuff. But the one that most people are going to go, oh, damn, is Claude Shannon. So if you're familiar with the OpenAI um, nowadays, uh, one of their competitors is Anthropic AI. Their model is known as Claude, named after Claude Shannon. And okay, so that was a whole a lot of names. Yeah. I could give you all the names, but I'm not going to go to it because those four were really the ones who led the Dartmouth workshop, the ones who created what we really know is the field of AI. Um, 
and oddly, it's kind of even before what we would refer to as machine learning and stuff like that. Um, so let's um, let's take a quick pause here for a second. Is this pre or post what we know today as the computer? And I know that some of these names, like as, as someone in the field, I know there's like a mix, but I want to like... There is. Um, so this is going to be kind of... <sighs> This is going to be the, the point of where the computers were starting to happen. So the old vacuum tubes, you know, like, like I go back to my engineering, you know, trivia here and everything. And the reason why we call software bugs, it was the simple fact that there was a bug found in a vacuum tube on one, an ENIAC, one of the first uh, large scale computers. I mean, these things were the size of warehouses. Um, because they were truly just analog. It was, you know, you basically binary, you know, the vacuum tubes either powered up or it's powered down. I've got two amps back there that use vacuum tubes and they're a pain in the butt. <laughs> you got to tune them with bias. You got to make sure the voltages are right. It, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, but you got to think about what coming out of World War II um, and a lot of the innovation. I mean, you know, something as simple in our terms now is things like the Enigma machine that was, uh, was captured from the Axis. When you look at those types of things, I mean, it was early encryption and that took a long time. I mean, there was movies based on how they cracked the Enigma um, and well, it's still a feat of engineering. Yeah. Like a lot of people are now familiar with Turing yeah. thanks to the, the movie. Who was actually part out. of Dartmouth, by the way, the Dartmouth workshop. He was there too. Um, he's, a, he's a forefather in the field of AI uh -huh. and I remember reading his paper his first example of artificial intelligence being intelligent was the cobbler, you know, uh, and for those of you that are unfamiliar and feel free to hop in anytime too, Eric, mm -hmm. uh, there's an example in one of Turing's papers. And when I say paper, I mean one of his published science academic papers where he talks about a mother leaving notes for her son to bring his shoes to the cobbler because they need to be fixed. And she keeps leaving this note on the door until the task is complete. And so Turing is relating these like basically sticky note reminders to, well, if we do this for people and we, we call it an intelligent thing and it's kind of like the same task, you know, how are these computers different in the way that we're commuting with them, you know, in a lot of ways. So, yeah. yeah you got you to gotta think about where, where we were in the United States, where Europe was, you know, post-World War II. Um, you know, there was, uh, there was a huge boom here in the States, um, a lot of rebuilding over in Europe, which created innovation um, oh. out of necessity. You know, I mean, yeah. it, 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 there's that saying, you know, necessity is the mother of innovation. Um, it kind of comes back to that and everything, but in the same breath, when you, you know, kind of bringing this back to, you know, technological point, the, the technological leaps that we made in the fifties, we as a human race made in the fifties yeah. is huge, you know, mm -hmm. not shortly after world war two, I mean, a little over a decade or about a decade after world war two, I mean, we landed on the moon for Pete's sake. You know, I mean, this was, you know, how fast we moved. I mean, we we went from guys that legitimately were boots on the grounds, buried in trenches with single file fire shotguns and stuff to landing oh. on the moon in about 25 years. That's a ridiculous leap in technology. So it doesn't surprise me that in the wake of 
World War II, that there was a lot of intellectual fervor. There was a lot of really smart people. There was a lot of people in power that were smart. And there were a lot of other, you know, what we would probably call nowadays hackers, you know, guys uh-huh. that were messing with it and doing things. And it, it really kind of pioneered, you know, things more as a theoretical musing um, than anything. You know, AI wasn't, it wasn't really possible in how we think about it today. And, and it really kind of gave birth to, Kate, something I know you're going to talk about. Well, you know, in AI, you can call the symbolic era and everything. And kind uh-huh. of the birth of AI was in the, the late 50s, uh, in through the 60s, uh, where some of these pioneers um, entered this and everything. And the seeds of the AI, elect, uh, you know, the, the intellectual journey of AI. Uh, were really first sown in this time. And it really just sought to replicate human intelligence through symbols, logic, and rules. Those were the three basic paradigms. So, you know, bringing this back to a really, really simple uh, thing. Think of, you know, those of you who have a smartphone, you know, you can do those if this, then that type thing. Um, and that's effectively what really AI was. So if I get an email from someone, notify me and then move that email into this folder so I remember to do that. Um, you for, those see- you are, oh, sorry. Go. Uh, for those of you who are more in the, maybe the legal area or in the philosophical realms, I think of modus ponens or in formal logic languages, if you look at, you know, like Grice and that, we have if P then Q, if not P then not Q, and so on and so forth. Like there's the the conditional argument, all of these things that can be translated from English into logicese, uh, that logicese, if you will, can then be translated into computational languages very, very simply. And it's, it's because those trees are quite frankly, inspirations of a lot of the code structures. And it's it's very much formulated the same way when it comes to those logic rules. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can imagine it like a realm of computers that, you know, the way they processed information was mm. through symbolic representations of things. So exactly. the, the idea yeah. was attempting to mimic the human reasoning, the decision-making in early wow. AI systems. Um, and to be good or not, they really succeeded in a lot of really great things. Um, really high level uh, mathematical theorems were proven mm-hmm. you know, in this era. Um, it was even able to play chess at a basic level. I mean, that is yeah. an impressive, impressive feat. I mean, we're talking into the 60s. So, you know, again, th- th- there was a lot of optimism uh, at that time. And every day, so people push things. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to kind of like work in parallel with this is it, it makes me think of how Chomsky kind of brought down behaviorism with his theory of universal grammar around the exact same time. And part of what makes this extremely interesting, actually, is this was near the symposium with uh, Alan Newell, mm-hmm. Herb Simon, Noam Chomsky. Uh, they there, there were a few others, uh, and I, I feel terrible forget, for forgetting names right now, but uh, we'll get back to it another day. I know for sure we'll, we'll be talking about that later. But Chomsky essentially brought down the entire field of behaviorism in a lot of ways from dominance with the idea of syntax versus semantics. Now, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, this is cognitive linguistics, 
Language is a symbol system that we use as humans to transfer abstract knowledge from our brains into the world and share it with other humans who have completely different abstract ways of viewing each other in the world. So language is essentially just us passing symbols in the shape of sounds or, you know, what we like to refer to as words. You know, we have morphemes, phonemes, etc., and And we combine these symbols together. Um, and the reason why I bring up Chomsky coming full circle here is he had this one sentence. Green ideas sleep furiously. Now, syntactically, a.k.a. structure-wise, this makes total sense. It follows the rules of logic, and that's why it sounds so good. Is And you're not just like, whoa, that's a weird sentence. What are you talking about? Green ideas sleep furiously, follows the laws of, of syntax. But it makes absolutely no sense because there's no meaning behind it. So because you can follow the rules of structure without holding the rules of meaning, it means that there's a difference between syntax, structure, and semantics, the meaning of words or the, the dictionary definition of what they are and the way that they come to use in, uh, in everyday language and so on. So this is what, uh, when we talk a bit about that, and I'm, I'm going to stop here and pass the mic back. Yeah, I can you're, see you're, you're, you're spot on it. with where I'm heading. I mean, in this symbolic era of AI was really kind of laid the foundations of thought, if you would, as far as how we would um, convey this through or how a computer would convey this to us. I mean, some of the real key milestones really came out of what you were just talking about was the logic and theoretical foundations in symbolic AI. They were heavily influenced by Alan Turing and a mathematician by the name of John von Neumann. Um, they were both some of the most yeah. early, you know, AI pioneers um, and probably some of the first people to really formalize what logic is in the basis of a machine reasoning. Anyway, so um, the idea of, I mean, simply put, anyone who's done a circuit or familiar with a, a simple class is like that, you know, you have the or statement, you have the not statement, and, you know, mm. that type of stuff, Boolean logic, you know, those those foundational data types and stuff like that are kind of what came out of it. Trust me, there's a lot more than just that, but you know, I mean, just keep it simple. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty you know, rich history. I mean, you also had, you know, Alan Newell, his stamp is huge across this because he worked with everybody. Yeah, I mean, he, he worked with IBM on the IBM 701 entering, which was one of the first chess playing programs. You know, um, the other thing that really kind of came out of this was um, really laying the foundations. You know, I mean, and I said it at the beginning and everything. So the foundations of thought, you know, expert systems, yeah. what is an expert system? They define these yeah. in the symbolic yeah. era, you know, that domain knowledge was encoded in rules in these logic statements and the systems were really, really narrow and everything. What we nowadays refer to as a narrow AI or discrete AI in some cases, yeah. um, you know, they, they attempted to solve complex problems, but they did it by simulating human expertise. Um, Newell and Simon came up and I believe it was a published um, document or something like that. But, uh, they refer to it as the general problem solver. And it was a very significant achievement in tackling a wide range of problems using this symbolic reasoning. Yeah. If you haven't heard of Herb Simon or Alan Newell, I invite you to please 
take a pause, go check them out. Absolutely some of the most influential and incredible scientists. You've absolutely touched their work, but you probably haven't heard of them. They're not as like famous as some of the household names, obviously. But my goodness, has their work impacted all of us? The, you, know, you know, especially with where we are right now. I mean, these guys oh, interfaced yeah. with people like Oppenheimer and Einstein and stuff like that. I mean, they worked in very different fields, yes. but it was a very small field at the time, you know, yeah. um, especially, again, post-World War II, yeah. the optimism of the world. Um, but one of the I things mean, that really kind of came out of this era and everything was understanding, you know, limitations and challenges despite despite mm. all that enthusiastic all that enthusiasm the symbolic approach had a lot of limitations complex real world problems are very difficult to model using just rules um so um, i'm actually going to pause you right here john because this is kind of like a beautiful segue moment eric I can see your gears turning and you have been dead silent. What is going on in that beautiful brain of yours? No, I'm just uh, contemplating uh, life and philosophy and listening to you and John and talk about these pioneers and, and symbolism. And um, it's so funny because um, when you're talking about the discoveries, a lot of these things are, it's like very cultural. Okay. There's a military. It has to do with like military, like the mil military purposes, and then when you, when you start talking about symbols and symbolism, and we start talking mm -hmm. about pioneers, I start thinking about more ancient philosophies of machine learning or the, or the term like an automaton. So, what do you mean when you say ancient? Oh yeah, like. Automaton's been back since the Greeks. Exactly, fantastic. Like, like we're we have our own Western perspective of like when certain philosophies enter our zeitgeist and our culture, and mm -hmm. many pioneers, in my opinion, are known because of their their practice or their experiments or expounding on their philosophy. But I feel like a lot of these philosophies are super super ancient because it's based on yeah. our regular machine learning so in the past obviously the the impetus to automate things like that's that's where that's where i'm i'm trying to draw a line but also congruency with the machine learning because i'm thinking i'm like oh ancient automatons or automation or the ghost in the machine or even an idol yeah. many many ancient times like when you'd have a big statue people would even venerate it or think there's even a soul inside and that question of like is this thing that is appearing to be real like does it learn does it think and yeah, yeah does it learn does it think does it respond it's it's funny that you touch on that because that's something I've always hated. I hate the term machine learning. It's not I, – I don't think it's our definition of learning. I mean, there is no math on how the brain creates synapse connections. None. We, we can't simulate it. Um, we believe we can, but every time we do, it gets proven wrong. Um, that, to me, um, is – probably one of the things I think scares people and one of the reasons why when I wanted to put this together with a history to show that it was 
you know, a long time. And you talk about symbolism in the ancient world and everything. I mean, it's something that, that's near and dear to my heart. I mean, I, been, over the last few years, teaching myself how to um, speak Japanese, spent a number of times over there, thoroughly love it, love the culture. Um, you know, Buddhism is part of my life. Um, it's, you know, there's tons of symbolism uh, in the Eastern cultures, the Eastern philosophies, and down to what Kate was saying with linguistics. Um, I love looking at the, the, the anthropology of linguistics. Um, you know, you can look at um, Chinese um, kanji, or, well, they don't call them kanji, they're right, no, Japanese. Um, but uh, there's a history and there is a, uh, a very, believed to be very, very accurate evolution from uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics into a number of the symbols that represent the Chinese language and the Japanese, well, frankly, like a lot of things, appropriated it for themselves um, and made adjustments. Korean language. It's it's one of the most fascinating things that I found was, you know, when you talk about East Asia, you know, you really think Korea, China, Japan, some people think of India a little bit, Philippines, but for the most part, it's those big, the big three. Um, if you can read the kanji in any one of those languages, you can decipher the kanji in the other languages. It's just a font differentiation for the symbol. And I find that fascinating um, mm -hmm. because we use a lot of the same thing in engineering. We're using a lot of the same symbolism in AI. Um, but still to this day, I hate that phrase machine learning. You can't teach a machine without an engineer. Okay. <laughs> so is so, it learning? I am so excited that you brought this up because it's like the perfect segue. And Eric, I'm quite sure you know where my brain is going with this too. Uh, Cyril's Chinese room experiment in machine learning and understanding what it means to understand. Uh, it's it's this super cool thought experiment. And if you haven't heard of it, that is totally okay. Uh, we'll put a link inside the bio or in the uh, description here as well for you. But Cyril essentially imagined this room and it's, it's kind of like a, a doorway, if you will. And there's a few variations of it, but the way I, I first learned it and the way that I would teach it at the beginning of this lesson is kind of, imagine just a door with like a mail slot, right? And, and you take a certain symbol and you pass it through the door. And now someone has a ledger on the other side of this door. And I could put an English word, say, for example, and I want to translate it to something else or to correspond to a different meaning. Inside that, that room, someone has a ledger that translates that symbol and then has the appropriate response or answer on the other side. So they pass you back the correct response. So kind of very, very simplified version. Did that entity and I say entity as like person or thing or object or whatever is doing that translation there with the ledger, actually understand anything. Are they smart? Are, do they have intelligence, you know? And, and when we talk about machine learning, it's impossible not to talk about the Chinese room because what does it mean to understand or to process a task or, or to complete a task, you know? Yeah, I would say it's a, it's based on the response. Like, that's how we know. Like, even if you're dealing with quote-unquote machines, if it's not 
responding to your inputs. It's a broken or faulty or faulty or faulty machine. Or even if you're trying to teach a class of students, mm-hmm. I feel like there's canned responses and there's ways to, <laughs> to see if somebody actually knows what they're talking about. So I feel like uh, there's like when you're, when you're, as I said, like I, whatever we're, we're discussed talking, I, I just, am, 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 I'm meshing humanity with machine with philosophy at the same, yeah. same point. So like in terms of like learning, like mm-hmm. I can think about like uh, a fax machine or copier. You're able to yeah. scan the data that's being inputted to you and not only be able to create some sort of facsimile, but also transmit that in some sort of way, either back to who is yeah. who, who programmed that with you or to somebody else in terms of passing the message on. It, it's a great example of symbol, you know, of how we would define a symbol in terms of logic oh. and running those. You're, you're, you're talking about the rules around those symbols mm-hmm. and, yeah. um, you know, kind of bringing this kind of back a little and, you know, the symbolic era, you know, obviously had its own challenges um, and laid the foundation, um, probably really shaped the trajectory of the field in general. Um, But it demonstrated that simulating human cognition required a deeper understanding of how humans think and learn. And it paved the way for AI leading to the rise of things like neural networks. This is where machine learning mm-hmm. came in and really, you know, some of the, the, the astonishing advancements that we've seen in, you know, even in just the last couple of years. Um, One thing I like about what Eric, you said there too, um, kind of like building on your point, John, is that it, it's completing the task. It's the response, right? And so when you're talking to a human, and they're saying all the right things to you. Is it just a response or do they mean what they're saying? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we kind of imply that weight to the more complex systems that John, you're now bringing up, you know, where it's able to respond in more ways or on different levels that it couldn't before. And, and maybe there's almost like this dissonance between what we think machines should or ought to be able to do versus what they're capable of doing. And because they've transcended those expectations, now we put that weight of like extra meaning on top of them. Like if I say, you know, um, Eric, oh my goodness, you've been such a good friend to me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for you. That could technically be a response to you being a friend to me, but you, care hopefully uh because of the meaning behind it where i'm like you know you you know there's emotion you know there's thought you know there's logic there's reason to a essentially a judgment or response saying that you are a good friend you know and if you get a response from a computer or an ai like john you're talking about neural networks and getting more complex it's like if a computer is saying that to you, you're just like, oh, tanks, computer, you know, but it's it's not the same. And there's that kind of like weight. And, I, I keep calling it weight. And, and, and that like, really is what happened in, in the late 70s. Uh, funding started drying up. The optimism started dying. And 
in the terms of the AI scope or the AI landscape or even the discipline, if you will, and everything, you know, I've, I've heard it referred to a number of times as the AI winter, because nothing really happened. Um, I like it's, that. It, yeah, it, it, it's it's kind of got a real sci-fi Star Trek-y type feel. Um, but what was really interesting is, despite all those setbacks and everything, um, the concept of like knowledge-based systems and expert systems mm-hmm. hadn't gotten lost on a lot of people. And there was a resurgence in those systems for things like medical diagnoses, uh, financial forecasting, everything's driven by money, we know. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, these systems aimed to capture that human expertise, that domain knowledge, but they were still using the rule-based structures. And, and this is in the 80s and everything. And what was neat is it gave rise to a new field, which is UK, and it was in the mid 80s, the cognitive scientists, the cognitive science as a field in influencing that AI research to shift it toward human cognition, connectionism, you know, those types of things. So the brain's interconnected neural structures, neural networks, obviously the cornerstone of connectionism, all those later breakthroughs, you know, so that's where we were, you know, closing out the 80s. That, That was really when things started happening where we're at today this is what drove where we're at today so this is why we stand newell first and foremost well there's a lot of reasons okay um newell wrote a paper called you can't play 21 questions with or 20 questions with nature and win and first of all if that title doesn't have you hooked on his sassiness uh the content will and what this paper spoke to was the fact that Science had become, and is still very much to this day, extremely siloed in the way that neuroscience will study neuroscience and not apply, say, tactics of linguistics or philosophy. Um, You know, the computer scientists or mathematicians were shoved in the math room, you know, and no one was talking or sharing information. And the reason why this is such an important piece to note is not to say that that's not important because domain specific knowledge, area specific knowledge, super important. We need to know those fine details, but not everyone needs to be studying the exact same way. If we build connections between similar fields, such as social psychology and psycholinguistics or, um, you know, psychology and neuroscience on a more broad scale, even, then we start to see patterns and answers and new areas for domain-specific knowledge that didn't exist beforehand. And so this was kind of what was alluded to beforehand. So cognitive science, a lot of people think I'm a cognitive psychologist when I say that, but it's actually untrue. John is 100% correct that we're a multidisciplinary field. It's very rare to have programs like that where they allow you to study five disciplines at the same time to the same depth and look at how each one connects and intertwines. That's true cognitive science is we play connect the dots across various disciplines to study cognition, thought, because you need philosophy, you need linguistics, computer science, psychology, and neuroscience. We also have other disciplines like anthropology on the side, you know, sociology, uh, even obviously artificial intelligence is a part of our our domain, it's part of our our field. And I think that if more people understood the value 
of looking across disciplines instead of drawing lines between them, we'd be in a better space when it comes to understanding things like artificial intelligence and these capabilities, even explaining what it is, you know, uh, I think I said this last episode, but artificial intelligence is not computer science. Computer science is artificial intelligence. It does not go both ways, you know? Uh, sorry, I can see both of you with your gears turning no, here, it's, Eric. It's funny that you say that because that's always been a struggle. You know, I, I'm a software engineer by trade. That's what I do. I just happen to be really good at math and love this stuff. Um, and it that transition out of what I just collectively refer to as academia into the real world is very, very difficult. Um, it, it completely different disciplines. But oh, 100%. And people act like it's the same thing. And I'm like, honey, you do oddly, not. The, if people would pay attention, yeah, you know, and listen to people like yourself, and as an engineer, as long as you take the time to understand the, the foundational concepts behind it, it does go oh. that way. And yeah. it's it's one of those things where you know I was just I was picking up something up at Micro Center the other day, local computer place, and I was talking to a kid that is in he's going computer science, and he was asking me a bunch of different oh. things and. I kind of chuckled and he, he, was, he asked me, he's like, what are you laughing at? I was like, what are you minoring? He's like, math. I was like, all right, you can get a job. Anyway, yeah. anyway computer science, it needs to go away um, unless you're actually researching advancements mm-hmm. in computer science, i.e. processor, GPU, TPU, yeah. all of these types of vectors, you know, all the types of math going, even looking at the quantum stuff that's going on now. Um, yeah. That's computer science. Quit calling yeah. me a computer scientist. I'm an engineer. That's all I am. Don't call me okay. a computer scientist. I don't invent things. I just make them real. <laughs> yeah. No, I love this because, okay, it is such an important part. I can't tell you how many times in my career people have said to me, no, you can't do that. And I'm like, watch me. It's the worst because word in the human lexicon is can't. I know. It's terrible. And... I, I'm going to unpack for a second here. It's because as a, as a designer, as someone who works with AI, as someone who builds out agents and, and works with people like yourself, John, like I love working with you because you understand this. If you understand the foundation or the principles of what's going on inside the, the practice that you're trying to emulate with AI or with the various systems that you're building, you can then find what pieces you need in the computational world to put them together following the same logic and the same reasoning to create something new. And so oftentimes the people who are the first to doubt you or to shut it down are only thinking about what currently exists or they quite honestly don't understand the actual foundation or history of where it comes from. And that's why people like yourself, Eric, you know, I'm really glad that you're joining the conversation because we need the human aspect. We need to understand what it is to dream or to think, or, you know, like you said earlier, John, what do synapses do? What is the neuroscience of thought? I often talk to people about emotional responses in emotional AI. 
when the amygdala flips its lid, as uh, Siegel would say, he's a neuroscientist out of UCLA, he's great, you should check him out. Um, if the amygdala flips, it flips its lid, cuts off communication to the prefrontal cortex, what does that mean? Heightened fight, flight, fawn, you know, response, and the inability to think logically, you know, you have all of these consequences. So, uh, Eric, what is going on in your head? <laughs> Yeah, we're ranting over here. No, I'm thinking all these these different things and <clears throat> culture, <clears throat> cultural criticism, philosophy, the ancient world, all these things. Because like even when you use the term philosophy, <laughs> which is yeah. Greek for like philo, love, and then Sophie, like which is a, a female representation of wisdom in Greek, okay. which goes to also the biblical symbology of wisdom, which um, is allegorical as a woman that you're always in pursuit of that you cannot necessarily catch and dominate. Really? Yeah. It's gendered? What? Yeah, because it's symbols is how we, it's just like how the brain okay. works. Like it's, it's symbolic. Okay. Okay. Like these are ancient. These are ancient symbols. Yeah. The symbols we use now are ancient interpretations okay. but like yeah the best way like in terms of let's say you're a religious person or even a, a theologian let's say you open the the like you, you open the bible and that's like a part of your belief system okay you could say that like the best way that let's say god would try to let you understand is going to be with allegories to like your day-to-day -day life and things that are very involved in, in what you're doing. So right. in terms of men, female relations, <laughs> I, I can tell you like, even to this day, 2020, 2023, whatever, like, and maybe John can say that not to like speak for like all men or, or heterosexual men or anything like that. But like most, I can say like, until you, get to like mid twenties or something like as a guy, like most of the stuff you're doing is like to probably like pursue women or get attention from, from women when you're, when you're younger. And it's so funny because just in terms of like maybe old school society, that was very like much more determinist. Like I feel like right now we, we move towards unlimited options, but when things are like much more like kind of predetermined, you probably like marry your neighbor was or like some family yeah. set up or something that you didn't have, as you would say, like agency over like yeah, yeah. a lot of things, agency over a lot of things. Yeah, it's compared to that almost grasping the wind. It's, it's a fool's errand. It's a fool's errand to think knowledge is something that you can monopolize. And I feel like in Western culture, it is some it's is projected as something you can monopolize. It's projected as something that is the key, the key to to life in terms of like a very science forward, a science forward approach in terms of our our society. Like I, I could say yeah. just like opinion based that most people in Western society would say the to bridge the gap from under like uh, ignorance to human knowledge, the complete pathway would be would be science. I think in Western society, a lot of spirituality is just based on um, existentialism. 
Okay, so first and foremost, one thing I want to say that's so interesting that you brought up there to me is both of those come down to the culture in which you were raised. And I love that you're bringing this up because, you know, I, I grew up in Western culture, in different countries, but in Western culture. And so often I remember feeling gross and dirty because people would ask me questions like, oh, do you have a boyfriend? And I'm like, no, I'm six. Like, you know, and, and you're so sexualized and, and gendered and taught your roles and taught the importance of the opposite sex and that sexualization, romanticization of the, the genders at such a young age, like a really, really young age. And it's brought into your ideology of what it means to exist and how you ought to exist in the world. Like you said, you know, you grew up trying to get the opposite gender's attention. And it's like, well, yeah, you've been asked since you were like old enough to talk if you were doing it yet, basically. Oh, do you have a girlfriend? Oh, that's okay. So like, it's a two-year-old baby. Like, leave it alone. Let it just exist for a bit before sexualizing it. And, uh, you know, it, coming forward too to, like you said, the monopolization of knowledge uh, and this kind of thing that we're taught, it's almost, like you said, inhibiting. It's also indicative of the culture in which we exist and how it values knowledge or how it values, again, attractiveness or, you know, where it's trying to push you, sway you, cause you to pay the most attention. Is it the best for you to pay the most attention to it this way? Is it the right way to think about knowledge to monopolize it or who's it benefiting? Where is this coming from? And it, you know, it's so funny, like people go like, oh yeah, culture, it's such a soft science. And it's like, mm, if you paid more attention to culture, you know, maybe, maybe you'd be a little better off. Yeah. And in terms of like your culture, like it's so funny. Cause um, I always look at, human beings like when we start talking about some machine learning as like our own like ai yeah. and i'd be like we're like super rogue to the purpose of which like most people like might not even say like what like if you ask them like what do you think your function is like what's your what's your purpose you know what i mean i think that's like a lifelong quest a life a lifelong quest and that's when yeah. and that's why as i said like and in, in like ancient cultures like your worldview was specifically like through your lens of your spiritual philosophy before anything. Yeah. And that's why I think, as I said, like a lot of the reason why people can be scared or think that AI is an Oppenheimer moment or like Skynet is because like, yeah. I can tell you, like, I remember, and whatever, like things change, it doesn't matter. But I remember when I was younger, growing up in Brampton and like uh, my parents immigrated here from Ghana in like the nineties. And I think everybody was kind of trying to achieve that American dream or anything like that. I remember if I went to like my Chinese friend's house or my Indian friend's house or this, there'd be certain different cultural elements, but there was like so much congruency and like mm -hmm. what mattered. Okay, go to school, stay out of trouble. You know what I mean? All these kind of things are very similar. And then also in the time of like the nineties, like there's certain cultural things that really like tied us in like no matter what culture you were, okay, you know Michael Jordan, you know the Maple Leafs, or you know yeah. these kind, these these kind of these kinds of um, these kinds of things. But like, dude, you're from Brampton, Vince Carter. Uh, like, come on. I can tell you, like, more so now, or like, 
maybe like during the 70s when the whole serial killer started to rise. This is a point where like I can say in 2023, like you can literally be living next door to somebody and be completely different lifestyle purpose. Like a murderer could be living next to you and something like that. It's just the way it goes. Like you don't know. Our Western culture where like, I feel like even in terms of like the government and not to be like conspiratorial or anything like that, I'm like, oh, if you're talking about Western culture, there has to be some sort of higher gauges to kind of govern or try to direct like how people behave when we have the most agency yeah. in the known world. It's, it's yeah. interesting. I mean, when you look at you know, you, you made reference into the 90s in the early knots and that type of stuff, which really was kind of the birth of this. Um, I started my career in the early 90s. Um, and, you know, this is before, you know, there really weren't any programs for computer science in terms of how we would implement it in, in a uh, public spe- sector uh, or a private mm-hmm. sector, sorry. Um, you know, there was a, there was research. Anyway, you'd go into school and you you'd learn chip design. They'd make teach you to make compilers. It, it, it's practical. Um, I, I've heard people still say like, "Well, I learned how to make a, a compiler." Congratulations. What are you going to do with it? Um, if you're going into research, great. More power to you. Um, I, I wish you all the luck, but. There's not a whole lot of practicality in it these days. And there's going to be a ton of people argue with me in robotics and ROS and stuff like that, but I'm not going to, I don't want to go there just yet. In the early knots, the late nineties, early knots, you know, this really kind of laid the ground to how AI systems use data and everything. And where's that data come from? That's what comes from our society. Um, it comes from, uh, you know, you got to think about it in the two thousands. I mean, it, we still called it the World Wide web. <laughs> AOL was still a thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, you know, I, I saw a video the other day of an early AOL commercial, and I sat back and I was like, I remember those. I thought they were cool. <laughs> um, get a CD. It, it, it was it's fascinating. AOL CDs you used to get like the CD. Yeah, in the yeah you get them in every freaking magazine you bought because we still bought magazines, you know. Um, but what was neat in this time, people started recognizing that we were accumulating data and it was becoming more available. Um, yeah. You know, you're talking the rise of Google at this point. I mean, Google was the first web scraper. If you really want to break it down, that, that really kind of made its way into the public. I mean, don't get me wrong. There was, you know, Alavista, there was Prodigy, there was AOL. They all had their different things. But for the most part, they were not automated, completely automated yeah. systems. There was a hand, a human thing, which is something we'll touch on another time. Because funny thing is that that's yeah. coming back into vogue. Um, but this gave birth to vector machines. You know, now I'm going to get a little technical here, so I'm going to let you look it up in the calculus books. Um, decision trees. Everyone's followed we a decision tree. you're going to use Google. Yeah, you already that too. Yeah. Hey, come on. I still like dead trees on occasion. I even have a chair back there that I sit on and read a dead tree. Um, 
you know, speaking of decision trees, but everyone's followed a flowchart. That's probably the most simplistic thing that you can think of as, as a decision tree. Um, oh. You can call it a directed acyclic graph and everything, meaning it doesn't loop on itself. Um, that's a very popular term uh, in these days. Um, Bayesian networks, that Bayesian math had been around for a long time, but never really implemented in this way. We all have spam filters. Hello, you're using a Bayesian. Yeah. Um, there's variations on it. Those became like the key tools that came to be. And, and every single one of them is dependent on the data our society generates. Um, this is also where the groundwork came for NLP or natural language processing, which is really what has proliferated our society and scared people right now. Um, I'm going to do another episode in generative and diffusion style AI, which is what we deal with a lot nowadays. Um, actually, pretty much all we deal with as far as like a public face goes. Um, but, you know, with this, you know, became a, a system where the data scientists started, came into vogue. It became a career, if you will. And to be honest with you, they were, I, I st that's a kind of a poor name uh, for a, what they do um, because it's a very varied field, similar to what like a cognitive scientist is. I know data scientists that are absolute geniuses at understanding and and communicating what the data is, but couldn't dream of doing anything with it. They just understand the schematics around it. I know other people that, you know, you give them an Excel file, give them a CSV file, give them a JSON file, give them a web page, and they're going to be like, what do you want me to do with it? And you've got to give it to them. But both of them are called a data scientist. Sad, it's a, but it's true. Well, so I've said this before, actually, um, on a different podcast, uh, on the Data Scientist podcast, actually, I, I was there as a guest talking about how we've reached this point, and I think, you know, um, both of you have brought up this point in our conversation, where we need to wake up and realize this is a part of our everyday lives, team. Like, we're in the technological era. It's a part of our culture. It's a part of our identities. It's, it's a part of our realities. Exactly. So why are we still calling it, you know, um, data scientist when there's like seven different streams of data scientist or, you know, it's the same with a, a computer scientist. Like you said, you know, um, computer science as a degree has completely changed because, you know, now kids are learning how to code. Sorry, Marvin is emphatically agreeing. Um, but uh, yeah, kids are learning how to code. Uh, people in high school taking advanced classes, you know? It's uh, Eric, did you learn how to code when you were in high school? Never or what? in university? Sorry, can you say that again? <laughs> Sorry, Marvin is just like really on this point. Wait, wait, wait. Um, this is what the edit's for. <laughs> <laughs> John and I obviously like we had we had coding classes and I'm curious, did you ever want to learn how to code, have the option to code or have like computer classes when you were in school? Yeah, like I've always been like computers always been like my good friend, like since I was uh, younger, like my first computer that was my friend was the, the TV. Like I grew up a, a bit of a TV kid and when I finally had a computer, 
and you hear the sound loading up and you see the Oh, you have one of those noise ones that oh, 1983 Utah satellites is what the computer said. Like before, yeah. there were monopolies on these computers, and then I had an Atari computer. computer as my first computer. Oh. That's, that's pre Commodore, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and then I was also like an early internet kid. Like I just thought about like discovery. Yeah. This stuff always like information. So I was always web surfing, finding out new ways to do things. I used to. Um, Butter jelly banana, what? like the peanut butter jelly banana. What the hell is that? The peanut butter, oh my god, oh, the peanut butter jelly time guy. Oh, dude, that's a banana. There, wasn't he a banana? I thought it was a dancing banana. <laughs> 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 These are like my this episode of the family guy, right? <laughs> peanut butter jelly I'm pretty sure this was pre family guy. Oh, dude, like GTA just came out for like the first one for the first time ever. And, uh, yo, this is back in the day. There were so many oh, was early 20s. internet. <laughs> we were easily entertained, guys. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I grew up in an era where a stick was perfectly fine. I don't know. There we, 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 we'd steal our hammers from our dads and climb trees and do yeah. stuff like, yeah. Anyway, um, oh, I'm gonna, we're, we're getting close we're to the end here. Up. So I, there's a couple yeah. of key things that I want to bring out. Um, I was hoping to get through all of this uh, as one episode. Uh, clearly, it's not going to happen. <laughs> we'll loop back and do a part two of this where I talk yeah. about a little bit more of the modern side. But I do want to I, I want to touch on some terms that and, and also some milestones uh, that I think a lot of people um, will recognize but not realize just how recent they really were because you know the revolution really started in 2010s and this was um multi-layer neural networks and i don't want to get too deep into it but just realize that you know the way things get broken down there's various steps and then they got to get reassembled with an output and stuff like that so they're very complex black boxes. We still can't completely explain them. Uh, and I think that's one of the biggest problems in AI and governments and where the breakdown is, but that's a whole other conversation. But oh, yeah. this really was a time where we start, started really seeing a proliferation of what we refer to as AI nowadays. It's, mm -hmm. it's more machine learning in that aspect where AI is more a specific discipline within uh, machine learning these days. But this is where we saw breakthroughs in computer vision, speech recognition, you know, think dragon dictator, uh, <laughs> dictation, um, uh, natural language understanding, not processing, but the actual understanding around it. Um, those types of deep learning models, we started getting into things what we refer to as convolutional neural networks, which is typically used in imagery and audio, um, CNNs, you'll hear them for in recurrent neural networks. These were the big revolutionary math papers and what we really build foundations on these days. Um, if you drive any car that has a lane assist camera in the thing for, you know, or the radar up front for adaptive cruise control, or God forbid you use one of those Teslas and the autonomous driving, um, that's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with a recurrent neural network most likely. And in some cases, a combination or a multimodal system because it takes the camera data, requires a convolutional network to break down those images, and then it runs it through the neural network of the RNN and everything to see the recurrency and see for probabilities. But a couple key things that I really wanna call out 
Ernie, you got to remember, 1956 is when the Dartmouth Workshop happened, okay? A little short of 80 years ago. Really, when it became like, wow, computers can do that was in 1997. That was when Deep Blue uh, defeated Gary Kasparov. Um, that wasn't long ago, at least in my world, it wasn't long ago. I mean, I graduated high school in 94. Two, it wasn't until 2011 that it came back in. Most people don't realize it. Watson won Jeopardy mm -hmm. in 2011. This is really where it took off. This is where it became mainstream. Yeah. 2012, ImageNet. Uh, we still use that as a training tool. And AlphaGo in 2016, who the game of Go. So those were the key things that you know you want to pay attention to. So, some milestones mm -hmm. that I think um, are culturally significant. Um, yeah. But for me to close and everything, you got to remember, it, this is a rapidly evolving landscape. Uh, AI engineering in general needs to move forward. We as engineers and software engineers need to be smarter. We need to work with people because it's crucial that this needs to be a collaborative effort moving forward. It's going to be researchers. It's going to be people like myself as an engineer. And Eric's going to be people like you, the visionaries, to help shape these trajectories. Otherwise, you know, things can really really uh go awry um so yeah that's that's my statement here we'll do a part two on the modern pieces um you two want to have any closing thoughts i like to think cognitive scientists are also extremely important well the researchers <laughs> i lumped uh, you all into there <laughs> you're right in saying it's going to take a village and it takes people doing domain specific research as well as collaborative research sure. we're all needed just thinking, yeah. just thinking, and um, yeah, no, 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 no comments. I was just thinking about the the genius of like that self-driving automation, which like is just based on sensory data, sensory data, right? Collecting that time to know exactly where and to 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 know the car surroundings and its trajectory, et cetera, et cetera. And I just think about different possibilities in my mind without trying to be a mad scientist, but uh, that's very interesting. <laughs> wait, wait, we brought you into the call. Like that. that's, that, that's a fascinating field in and of itself, um, probably worthy of, a, of an episode because of how many disciplines it involves, um, how difficult it is, um, as well as, you know, it, it's funny that it's, it's evolving into simpler is better. They used to be super complex, and now they're getting simpler and simpler and simpler. Um, By far, not everyone, and I think that's part of the discussion too. The KISS method, you know, keep it simple, stupid. A lot of engineers, you know, know that one tried and true, but uh, yeah. you're right in saying it's worth another episode. So thank you for today. Thank you for this conversation. And most of all, thank you all for listening. We appreciate you so much. This has been another episode of AI Impressions. You will find all of the resources and references that we spoke to in the description of this below. We have our website up and going at this point. So you can visit us at aiimpressions.co and you will find that link inside the chat. So we look forward to seeing you and coming out with our new shorts soon. So stay posted. We've got lots of content for y'all. Thanks again. Have a great day.